Well, without further ado, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. All right, well, as I like to try to do, whenever we get to a new section in the letter, I want to just recap a little bit of what's been going on so far. But um, where we are in Romans right now, and the reason is because Romans, when we get to Romans 8, Paul is going to start that chapter by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he says that word, therefore, uh, as we all often like to joke around, the therefore points us back. What's it there for? Well, it's there to point us back. Now, it's there to point us back to what he's just said in Romans 7, but it's also there to point us back to pretty much everything he's been saying so far in the letter. This is like a big culmination here. Uh, You can pretty much look at Romans 8 as sort of the conclusion of his theological argument or his, his exposition of the gospel. Because when you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, which we will, Lord willing, in the future, it, 9, 10, and 11 is kind of like an excursus. It's a, it's a pause in his thought because he starts to deal with the, the issue of the future of Israel, which is related to what he's been saying, but not, you know, not directly related to what he's been saying so far. Really, the argument concludes at the end of chapter 8, and then when you get to chapter 12, begins sort of like the practical outflow of what he has said. So here he's bringing to conclusion the theological argument, the doctrinal argument, the, the, the conclusion to his exposition on the gospel. So if you recall all the way back to when we began, maybe the second or third lesson, We looked at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, which was a theme statement for Paul. It's really the theme of the letter of Romans where he says that the gospel of God, the gospel contains the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For in it, in the gospel, is the revelation of the righteousness of God for everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And we find out that the righteous then, the righteous one, is one who lives by faith, not by works. And then he goes on in Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, where he then talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed. It is being revealed against the Gentiles currently now as they continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness as they deny the clear evidence of God in creation. And of course, that wrath is also being stored up against the Jew to be revealed later. That wrath is being stored up, it's being held back, as it were, to them so that they would repent of their sin and turn to God for forgiveness. And then as we get to Romans 3, that wrath is revealed against all men because None are righteous, no one does good, all have sinned, and all are then guilty before God. All are then deserving of God's wrath. But then we get to Romans 3.21 and the rest of Romans 3 there, and we see now that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. That righteousness that is revealed to us is given to us by faith. So God graciously gives to us through faith in Christ, what he righteously demands of us. He demands that we, get, we 
perfectly adhere to all of the stipulations and commandments of the law. And then he gives that righteousness to us by faith in Christ, because it is Christ who is the one who has perfectly fulfilled all of the righteousness in the law. And he gives us that then what he demands from us. And then in Romans 4, justification has always been by faith apart from the law. It's never been by works. And he does and he shows us that by pointing to the life of Abraham, using Abraham as a test case to show that righteousness has always been or justification has always been by faith apart from works of the law. And then as we get to Romans 5 through the end of Romans 8, we are now seeing the benefits that accrue to us by our justification by faith in Christ. We saw that in Romans 5, justification gives us peace with God. The long war with God is over as we are now at peace with God because of our justification by grace through faith. We also see that justification is the triumph of Christ over sin that wipes out the failure of Adam. We were all sinners in Adam, but the the success of Christ, he wipes that out. He undoes what Adam failed to do. And then justification, of course, justification, we talked about that is freedom from the penalty of sin leads to sanctification, which is freedom from the power of sin. So as we get into sanctification in Romans 6, we see that the power of sin is broken in our lives. And we're now able to, by the help of God, by the grace of God, through his Holy Spirit, to do works that are pleasing to God. We are able now. We are free to obey the law. And that the power of, and threat of the law, this Romans 7, has also been broken in our lives. So again, as I said earlier, as we come to Romans 8, I believe what we're seeing here is a conclusion to the great detailed exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has been working toward all this time. So how we have been saved, that is justification. How we are being saved, that is sanctification. How we will still yet be saved, which is glorification, which he addresses in Romans 8. And then the applications of all this gospel living we will examine in Romans 12 to the end of the letter. And as I said, with an excursus on the future of Israel in chapters 9 through 11. But all the main points that he has wanted to make uh, effectively come to a conclusion here at the end of chapter 8. So Paul here, as he gets into chapter 8, he's going to now discuss our life in the spirit. How, as we saw at the end of chapter 7, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he kind of breaks off that thought for a little bit because he'll continue that thought in Romans 8 all the way to the end of the chapter. The the thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is that by the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us gives us the power to combat the sin that still remains in our flesh. So he's going to talk about life in the spirit, particularly verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. And we're going to discuss this probably over the next three weeks, because this morning we're really only going to look at verses one through four. So I'm going to read those verses and then we'll we'll get started. So Romans chapter eight, starting in verse one, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in this passage, we're going to see basically three things. He's going to make this great declaration in verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to give us the grounds for that great uh, declaration in verses 2 and 3. And then he's going to give us the purpose of that declaration, what it is meant to lead to in verse 4. So Paul begins this greatest of all chapters, and I think this is a great chapter. I think Romans 8, if, if there is a Mount Rushmore of chapters of the Bible, I think Romans 8 would be one of them. Okay, I think you could, I don't know which one it would be, if it would be Washington or Jefferson or Lincoln or, or Roosevelt. I'm not sure why Roosevelt's on there, but Romans 8 would be there. Okay, it is one of the greatest of all chapters, and it begins with a great declaration in verse 1, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as we said before, the therefore takes us back to something Paul has already said, particularly in Romans 7, 24 and 25, where he gives us this cry of despair as he cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? The struggle in every believer between the spirit and the flesh eventually drives us all to this brink. The battle between knowing what, we ought, what ought to be done and what we actually do is frustrating. The gap between knowing what is right and the doing what is right. But with the cry of despair then comes this glimmer of hope where Paul then says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he will, we will expand on this in the following verses. But let's take a brief look at what Christ has already done for us in Romans so far. If you look at Romans 3.25, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans 3.25, we find out that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the one who makes atonement for our sins. He was offered up as the lamb was on the day of atonement to appease the wrath of God and to remove our sins from us. And as a result of Christ's propitiation, we are then justified in God's sight. We are declared not just not guilty, We are declared innocent. We are declared righteous. We are declared just. And by our justification through faith, we now have peace with God. God is no longer angry with us. We are no longer enemies of God. What does he say in Romans 5.8? He saved us while we were enemies. And now that we are saved, we are now at peace. We are no longer enemies of God. And because of that, The condemnation that brought the whole human race through Adam's sin has now been reversed and removed by Christ. Grace now abounds to cover our sins. Where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we are no longer under the power and dominion of sin because we are now in union with Christ. The power and dominion of sin have been broken. He he died to sin. He was buried. He was raised to newness of life. We died to sin. We were buried and we were raised to newness of life. And therefore, because of all the manifold blessings we have in Christ, Paul then can declare, not on his own authority, but with the supreme confidence and authority of the word of God, he can declare, there is therefore now 
no condemnation. God no longer condemns us. Sin no longer condemns us. The law no longer condemns us. And the peace we now have with God as a result of our justification by faith has the further benefit of completely removing any and all reasons for condemnation. Of course, this blessed benefit of no condemnation is only available, as Paul says, to those who are in Jesus Christ. It is only available to those who are in union with Christ. We have been freed from our condemnation under the law. Now let's take a look, a quick moment to uh, let this gospel truth sink in. Okay, We can read this, this great intro to this great chapter, and we can kind of just speed right past it on to verse 2, verses 3, 4, 5, and whatever. But let this truth sink in for a moment. In Christ, you no longer stand condemned. Okay? Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? This should get a hearty amen from all of us. We are no longer condemned. I mean, I don't know what could energize your faith and motivate your thankful obedience more than the news that you are no longer condemned in Christ. And this is not only a source of comfort and good news, but it also fuels our assurance, our assurance of our faith. That's why Paul will say later, as we will get to this eventually, Lord willing, but in verse 34 of chapter 8, where he is going through that last section of those verses in chapter 8, and he says, who is, con- who is to condemn? Who is there to condemn you now that God has justified you by grace through faith? Christ Jesus is the one who died. The very Son of God died on your behalf. Who can condemn you? More than that, he was raised. Death couldn't hold him in the grave. His his sacrifice was acceptable to God because he was raised from the dead. And now who is at the right hand of God the Father, who is indeed interceding for us? The dead and risen Christ and ascended Christ is now at the right hand of God interceding for you. Interceding for me. The accuser is there to accuse us. And Christ says, no, he is one or she is one that I have died for. No longer condemned. While the security of our salvation is never in doubt, the assurance of it can waver. Our assurance of salvation can waver because our assurance of our salvation is in a sense sort of the subjective feeling or understanding of our own uh, security and salvation. And that's why it can waver. This is clearly laid out in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 18 and subsections 3 and 4, where essentially what they say there is that assurance of salvation is not of the essence of faith. It says the believer may wait long, and conflict with many difficulties before obtaining it. So in other words, assurance is something that we can struggle with in our Christian life more and more to try to obtain and try to understand the assurance of faith. 
Now, assurance can waver because sometimes we fall into seasons of sin, right? Sometimes we fall into dry spells in our spiritual life where our prayer life is dull, where we don't get as much joy reading the Bible, where we are in a season of sin. We just can't get out of it. Our assurance can waver. We can feel, well, why would God save a person like me? But the point is, when you recognize and meditate on the truth that there is no longer no condemnation, that fuels your assurance, which is why the Bible says we must with all diligence make our calling and our election sure. That's what Peter says. Make your calling and election sure. Do the things that build up your assurance. Assurance can in many ways be shaken and diminished through sin and temptation, but never fully destroyed. But think about how much our assurance is strengthened by reading the truth in Romans 8.1. That there is no longer no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Moving on to verses 2 and 3 now, we see the grounds for or the foundation upon which this glorious gospel truth of no condemnation is built, where in verses 2 and 3 we read, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So first, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you remember from last week, uh, when we looked at Romans 7.21, and we saw there that the word law, I said that the law can be, the word law can be translated as the word principle, or rule, that word law, nomos, can be, can be used as the word law or can also be used to, tra- uh, to describe a principle or a rule. And I said that Romans 8.2 also uses nomos in that same way as a principle. So really you could say here the principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the principle of sin and death. So the first ground, the first plank upon which this gospel truth of no condemnation is built is Namely, that the principle of the spirit of life has set us free from the principle of sin and death. The principle of sin, or the the sin principle, as we've been talking about last week, uh, is what reigns in the flesh, right? It is that part of us that is still unredeemed, uh, our corrupt nature. We have been made new creatures in Christ by grace through faith, but the flesh is still unredeemed, and that is where the sin principle dwells. And it is, it is, that's its beachhead. That's its sort of, its foothold in our lives. It's the last battleground on which sin can operate. But in the life of one who is in Christ, there is a new principle at work. And this is the principle of the spirit of life. It is now fighting in us to combat this principle of sin and death. In fact, if you peek down to verse 9, which we'll cover probably in a couple of weeks, You see, where Paul says, you, however, those who are in Christ, the people to whom I'm writing, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us is that principle of life, It is the principle of the spirit of life that is in us, that is working with us, And is helping us to combat this principle of sin and death. 
Now, the point Paul is making, and we'll continue on in verse 3, is that the power of the Holy Spirit in us now starts to override the sin principle at work in the flesh. It helps us to combat. It starts to override the sin principle. Paul lamented last week in, in Romans 7, 14 through 25, that there is a war waging in his body. And what the law of the mind is unable to do because it is in this battle, the principle, the spirit of life, is able to do. And it's the principle of the spirit of life that sets us free from the principle of sin and death. In fact, essentially what Paul is saying is we're in a new era of redemptive history. Okay? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ has inaugurated the age to come. Now, we're not fully in the age to come yet, but the age to come now has sort of broken into this present evil age. We are in the overlap of the two ages, the already and the not yet. The age to come is a spiritual age. It is an age of life. Not life as we're living now, but life as Christ himself is now experiencing. his glorified, his spiritual life. And this principle of the spirit of life has now been released. It has been set free. It has been kind of, the cage has been opened. And now the spirit of the principle of life is out roaming in our lives. It has been released in those who are in Christ. And now this battle within us is the age to come fighting against this present age. And good news is that it's a battle that will eventually end in our favor. And additionally, notice that the spirit of life has set us free. We were in bondage to sin and death in the law. Being born in Adam, we are by default under the dominion and reign of sin and death. But now that we have been set free by the Holy Spirit, we are, as Paul says in Romans 6.14, we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. We are no longer subject to the present age. We are no longer under the law. We are now in a state of grace. We are now in the age of grace. We now exercise in a sphere of grace. In verse 3, he continues to lay the groundwork for our declaration of no condemnation. Not only has the principle of the spirit of life set us free, but we also learn that God has done for us in Christ what we ourselves were unable to do. God has done for us in Christ what we ourselves were unable to do. First, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, we've mentioned this several times before when we were looking at the law. The law originally was a pathway to everlasting life. We looked at that when we talked about how it was given to Adam. Adam was set in the garden. He was set in a period of probation. He was given a commandment by God. Do not eat of that tree. And if had Adam obeyed, he would have then been translated into the age to come. The law would have been a pathway leading to eternal life. Unfortunately for Adam, he failed. (laughs) And what happened was now the law no longer is a doorway or a pathway to life. It's a door that has been shut for all of us because Adam failed. But it has always been sort of a considered a pathway to everlasting life. God gave the law to Israel and told them, do this and live. In other words, if you could do it perfectly, if you could do it without sin and corruption, you would live. 
But Paul says here, the law is weakened. It is weakened by our flesh. It is weakened by that unredeemed, corrupt part of our nature. So now all the law can do is it can show us our sin. It can define what sin is, but the law cannot stop us from sinning. In fact, we learn quite the opposite, right? The law provokes the sin nature in us. You set up some rules and boundaries, and what that does is that just sort of prods and prokes and provokes the sin nature in us to want to transgress those boundaries. The law can't fully atone for our sin. And this is not the fault of the law, but a testament to the weakness and the infirmity in us due to the fall and our corrupt nature that we inherited from Adam. And as we just said, moreover, the sin principle hijacks the law. It takes that which is good and makes it a, an instrument for death and evil. It hijacks the law and uses it to produce more and more and more and more sin in us leading to death. So God has to intervene, and he does so by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, if you think about that, God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That is, in a sense, the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Right? I mean, Jesus Christ came to, in, in the human flesh to die for sin. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do. Jesus Christ was sent. The Son was sent by the Father on this divine rescue mission. Jesus Christ was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, as we saw in the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh. The Son took on the form of a servant. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. In order to atone for the sins of man, the Son of God had to become man. Right? In order to atone for the sins of man, the Son of God had to become man. And when he says here the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul is trying to teach a few things. First, he is, he is, not te- he is teaching that the Son didn't appear human. All right? It wasn't like Jesus Christ came and he looked like a human being. He was actually a human being. There's an ancient error called docetism that says that Jesus Christ, his humanity, only appeared to be human. But he also teaches that the Son himself didn't sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not himself sinful. In fact, again, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, Jesus Christ took to himself a real human body and a reasonable soul, yet was perfectly without sin. But Paul says here in Romans that Jesus Christ was sent for sin. He was sent for sin in the likeness of human flesh for sin to die on our behalf. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could be the righteousness of of God in Jesus Christ. So God sent Christ, the one who knew no sin, he sent him to be sin. Jesus Christ became cursed on our behalf. He became sin and bore the wrath of God for our sin. And then finally, Paul says here, he condemned sin in the flesh. The ultimate reason why there is no condemnation for us is because Jesus Christ condemned sin in the flesh. He destroyed the power of sin and death by himself dying to sin. 
He physically tasted death for all of us. And it was his death for our sin that crushed the power of sin by taking its curse upon himself. So the resurrection from the dead then broke the power of death over us. By being raised from the dead, he broke the power of death. He defeated death. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, death is the last enemy. And it has been defeated by his own resurrection. And it will be defeated by our resurrection too. And now as we get to eight, verse 4, Paul gives us the purpose The purpose for why God did all of this for us in verse four, where he says, in order that there's your purpose clause in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God accomplished for us what the law could not because it was weakened by the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, again, I go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ was made to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. We often talk about having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ applied to us through faith. And that imputed righteousness means that by faith, we have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled. That righteousness then means that we, in a sense, by faith, have fulfilled perfectly the law. As I like to say, because of our union with Christ, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, graciously given to us through faith, when God looks at us, think about this, when God looks at us, he does not see sinner. He sees perfectly righteous in Christ. God looks at you now in Christ and sees law keeper because Christ kept the law for you. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled by Christ. And now we are able to have that righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us through faith. As we said earlier, he graciously gives to us the very righteousness he demands from us. We are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And that's what the imputed righteousness of Christ does for us. And moreover, these righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, commentators on Romans 8 are somewhat split as to what Paul means when he says the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. Some say it is the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us through faith, as I just detailed a moment ago. Others say it's practical righteousness, a life of walking by faith. And as I like to say, why can't we have both? I like having my cake and eating it too. In other words, when I see two options that are given for, for you know, you see a verse and you're like, well, there's one camp that says this, another camp that says that. As long as those two options are not mutually exclusive, you might be able to say both answers apply. And I think in this case, both answers do apply. We do have the righteous requirements of the law given to us, imputed to us by faith. But then that also then works out in us in practical righteousness. As the spirit is working in us, we are now walking more and more in our lives according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. 
It's just another way of saying justification leads to sanctification. Or put another way, the proof that one is no longer under law but under grace is that he or she is walking according to the Spirit. This is a life that's in tune with the principle of the Spirit of life. It's a life guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We looked a little bit at this last week when we looked at Galatians 5, but it might be helpful again to look at Galatians 5 real briefly. I know time is running away with us here, running away from us. Galatians 5.16, we read this last week. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, and so on. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you are, by default, fulfilling the law. Because the, the Spirit is working in us to conform us, to bring what we are declared to be in Christ, so that our practice then matches that. A life that is walking according to the Spirit is a life that is keeping the law. And that's just scratching the surface here of life in the Spirit. But already I think we can begin to see that the answer to Paul's cry in Romans 7.24 isn't to dig deeper and try harder. Right? Isn't try to be a better person next time. Just do better next time, okay? You'll do better next time. That's not Paul's call here. The answer is to tap into the infinite reservoir of power that is provided to us by the Holy Spirit. Again, as Paul says in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh.